Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut or shortened due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. Listening colour. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers and me, Elliot Moss. It's where the shapers of business join the shapers of jazz, soul and blues. My guest today, I'm very pleased to say, is Steve Levine, founder and owner of Man Made Soul, which looks after his recording studio and record label, and co-founder and director of radio production company Magnum Opus Broadcasting. What a grand name. Steve wanted to make records from a young age, having grown up surrounded by music. Age 17, he worked as a tape operator with CBS Studios, progressing to in-house engineer, working with new wave acts, as he called them, like The Clash and XTC. He found the title engineer too confining and took the step into both production and songwriting, signing a publishing deal with Rondor Music. Steve's reputation as a producer in the 80s was second to none. He was responsible for all of Culture Club's classic hits, thank you Steve, and has since worked with artists as diverse as Stevie Wonder, Motorhead and the Beach Boys. And Steve, by the way, is the only producer, apart from Brian Wilson, to produce an album by the original Beach Boys lineup. Not bad. On top of all of this, he co-founded Magnum Opus Broadcasting in 2003 with Richard Allenson, producing radio shows and podcasts. Yes, he's a pretty busy fellow. We'll be talking to Steve in a few minutes about all of this, about being a pioneer of digital recording techniques and about Hubris Records, his independent record label. We've also got brilliant music from, amongst others, Marvin Gaye, Robert Glasper Experiment and Nora Jones. That's Jazz Shapers today. Here's Cal Chader with Soul Source Guachi Guaro. That was Cal Chado with the brilliant sound of Soul Source Guachi Guaro. Steve Levine is the main event, ladies and gentlemen, here today with me. Um, so many different things that he's involved in, there's only where to start. The man who loves music. That's how I'm going to introduce you. Well, I do, and I knew that I wanted to be a record producer, or in those days, an engineer from about 12 or 13. That was what I really, really wanted to be. How did you know that, Steve? Um, so when I first started, I was born in Hampstead, and I lived in Muswell Hill. And my mother worked, and in fact, when I was born, I was born in Hampstead at the top of the heath. That used to be a maternity home. And... The lady next to my mum, who also had a son at the same time, Rita, was Jamaican. And they became, and were, up until my mother's death, lifelong friends. Brian, when he was born, which was her son, had autism. And one of the things that he had that was part of his autistic spectrum was that he really loved rhythm in music. So very early on, we would listen to early, well, they were Scar records then. And this was because Rita's husband was the guy responsible. He used to work for Austin Morris, and he was the guy responsible for anyone that's been to Jamaica, and certainly they have these brilliant old English cars. But in the 60s, he set up the link, which is why those cars are there. But he also brought back all the records. So we had the very earliest versions of all the Scar records, and indeed the early Motown records, because very often the records that we know and love as Motown records in the late 60s, early 70s, had been out five years. 
So Brian used to play drums, a toy drum kit, along with those records. And so we just used to listen to them over and again. But because he had autism, he would listen to one record, like Al Capone's Cast Don't Argue, over and over and over again. But consequently, I started to listen to them and think, why does a Scar record sound like that? And then at the time, say, a Beatles record sound like that, or a jazz record sound like that. That really fascinated me, and specifically the reggae and ska records and the very early Motown. They had such a different sound to anything else that was being played on the radio or listening to a record. And I thought, what is that? And then I remember a documentary on the television with Phil Spector, and that was a changing point because the documentary had... uh, Phil Spector in the studio, and there's a famous still that you can find, a picture, where it's got Phil Spector in the studio with his engineer, Larry Levine, at the controls. And there's a picture of Larry Levine sat at the mixing console with a shirt, you know, white shirt and everything. And Larry Levine spelt his name exactly the same as me, which was unusual because a lot of people spelt Levine E-N-E as opposed to I-N-E. And I thought, that's it, sound engineer, because I also was very aware of Phil Spector's early records and the sound that they had, which again was really different from anything else. So it was the sound of records that really inspired me to think, how do they get that? What do they do? And of course, when you're at school, you say to your careers officer, I want to be a sound engineer. And there's no, these days it's a lot easier. There's fabulous courses at all the universities. But in those days, there was nothing. You could go and work for the BBC or that was about it. So one had to sort of look for opportunities where you could record. And I went to a boys' school, a technical school, and that was a school where lots of the boys wanted to be in bands. It was very... This was the 70s by then. And I got the gig of doing the sound for them when they would do the school concert or whatever. So the physics teacher also had this separate electronics course, which I really enjoyed. And we started building a disco for the school, you know, including the lighting, so two decks and the preamps and everything. And I really, really got into that. And so then I made my own mobile disco. And this was at the time when, you know, the soul music was really at its... And, and reggae was, was at its best. And through... I think it was still through Rita's contacts, I, I signed up this mail order thing where, because of the change how America was, they would empty out the jukeboxes and you could buy... I can't remember exactly how much it was. It wasn't very much because I had a Saturday job and I could afford to do it. So I'd say it was a couple of quid. You got a random box of records every other week and they all had no middles in them and they had the... You know, where they sort of put a soldering iron through them because they're taken out of a jukebox. Many of them were quite scratched, but amongst them were just gems. You know, the sort of northern soul gems that were trading hands for hundreds of pounds, very often the B-sides were never, ever played. So I got this amazing record collection, which was part of my mobile disco. And that started me on the journey to think, well, I love playing records, but I want to make records. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the beginning of Steve Levine's love of music. Stay with me for much more about where this journey is going to take him, uh, all the way through Culture Club and various other people and businesses as well. Brilliant stuff. Time right now for some music. It's Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. That was Marvin Gaye with What's Going On. Steve Levine's my business shaper, and if you were listening earlier, you would have heard him very eloquently talking about 
how he got into music and why he loves music. I'm going to jump to that schooling, and it feels like it was a schooling, if you like, into you becoming a fully-fledged record producer and you sitting there in your own white shirt with your surname, Levine, and in front of you, you've got Boy George, and in front of you, you've got some of the best artists of my experience of being a teenager in the 80s. Did it ever strike you that you were doing something super special at that point, or were you just doing your job? I think the way that the, the whole Culture Club sessions took place was one of a, of a journey. So during my period of being a tape-op, progressing to an engineer, I worked with loads and loads of punk bands. That was the thing that was happening. And the way that CBS set their studio up is that Studio 3 had all the sort of used equipment from Studio 1 and 2 when they were upgraded. So consequently, it was a training curve. But because I'd had so many punk bands under my belt, I got the gig to do the Angelic Upstarts album. It was going to be their, almost their last album. And so punk was on its sort of last moments. The important thing about that album was that the Angelic Upstarts were managed by Tony Gordon. So Tony was so impressed with what I did, he said, look, there's this band I think are really good, called Culture Club, would you come and have a look at them? So we went to a place called Fubuts, which was a new kind of club, and it was just off of Carnaby Street, just around the corner from this very studio. And there was something like, oh, that's interesting. Because when you see a load of bands, and at that time I was young, so I was going to see seeing bands regularly, when something is slightly better than average, it really jumps out. So the very next thing, Tony said to me, look, I want John Moss, the drummer of Culture Club, to come and see you and explain the plan. And I was busy in my publisher's writing studio, which is Rondon Music. I'd just signed a publishing deal at that point, and I'd managed to buy a load of new equipment. And those two things were really important because one of the things I decided with my love of sound was a lot of demos that were going around the sort of music industry at the time were beginning to sound a bit kind of stale. And because I'd just signed this publishing deal, I'd bought one of the very first Lindrums, which is the very first digital drum machine. And that enabled me to create brand new sounds and also create demos that sounded far above average. And the very first thing that John Moss said to me, so those that know the history of John Moss, he'd been in Adam and the Ants and he'd been in London, the punk bands. I'd actually never met him at those, that point. I'd actually met his brother, but I hadn't met John. The first thing he said to me, he said, you know, the problem with Adam Ant, there's two drummers, it's really difficult. How can we create the sound of two drummers, but with only me? And I said, well, John, look, can I show you this drum machine that I've just got? I said, we could do the backbeat on that, and then you could play, at the time, it was very much the Bow Wow Wow, the Burundi beat, the sort of the last of Adam Ant going into Bow Wow Wow. And I showed him what the drum machine was doing, he went, that is perfect, that's exactly it. So the very first Culture Club tracks consisted of that sound. And because Tony Gordon had an arrangement with EMI Records, I got some free demo time in January 1982. And I always remember that because Rondon Music is part of my sort of, you know, thank you for signing with us sort of thing. They bought me a desk diary, which I'd never had before, a big red desk diary. And the first thing I wrote in it was Culture Club Session, January 82. So by the time George had stood in front of me at that microphone, I kind of already knew what we were doing. Mm. And the interesting thing was, you mentioned about this kind of, the, the, the difference. So we recorded the vocal. And one of the great things that was happening in that period was that what was disco music of the 70s had morphed into this new romantic disco music, which was played in these clubs. I mentioned Fubert's Club. It was 
very early Duran Duran, very early Spandau Ballet, a little bit of Depeche Mode, but they owed their influence to the 70s in terms of both disco, David Bowie, even some of the, the rhythm of some of the sort of glitter records it, or, or T-Rex. It had all those elements. And if you dissect those records, you can hear it. So what was so great about having the, the drum machine was we had a really tight backing track. But one of the things that was very, very common on a lot of those records was the lead vocal was double-tracked, i.e. singing it twice. So I said to George, why don't we double-track the vocal? And he went, I don't even know what that is. I said, well, just sing it again. He sang it so perfectly. That was the, the deciding thing. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. It sounds double-tracked, but it doesn't sound like I thought it was going to sound. And it was that point that made us start to think about involving... Helen Terry on backing mm. vocals. She certainly wasn't on the first couple of records because we haven't found her at that point. But the specialness, I'm just really interested yes. in that. In, in a simple thing, when you saw it, because you talk about working as a producer uh, at, uh, and you say 20 ideas, 19 are rubbish, there's one good one. Yes. When you see a gem like that, is there a feeling, a visceral feeling that of a wow? Yes. In, and, in, in, in a quick answer, I was going to need to jump to the music that we're going to come back yeah. to, but is it, what's well, that, it is. What's that it was, sense like? It was when George double-tracked the vocal and the melody was so ingrained in his mind that he matched it perfectly. Now, for those that are not musicians, to double-track a vocal that perfectly is a real skill. That was the moment I thought, wow, this guy can really sing. And his understanding of melody was really, really strong. And when we mixed that song, I thought, wow, we've got a hit turned out not to be a hit but i thought it was great so that was my wow moment when he completed the double track on that first part of what was white boy dance the first track that we cut stayed me for more from my business shape but steve levine talking about spotting brilliant things feeling the talent and then being able to actually do something with it he's coming back in a couple of minutes first though we're going to hear from one of our partners at mishkondrea with some advice for your business Hello, I'm Joe Hancock, Head of Cyber for Mishkondorea. Cybercrime is a major issue in the UK at the moment. You're more likely to be a victim of cybercrime than you are to be a physical crime. It's an issue that affects all of us, both in our personal lives and our professional lives. We see more and more about it in news headlines every day. So how do these cyber attacks happen? Are these actually done by some person wearing a hoodie sat behind a computer somewhere? Does a green skull and crossbones appear flashing on the screen when someone carries out a successful cyber attack? Do you hear the sound of money disappearing for your bank account? Unfortunately, none of these things happen. A successful cyber attack really shows no signs. So what do you do if you think you've been a victim of cyber attack at home? There's some really good advice actually from Action Fraud, which is to take five and tell two. Take five minutes to think about what's happened. Is this something that's too good to be true? Most cyber attacks delivered towards people rely on pressure. They want you to do something quickly. They really don't want you to think. So just think, is this actually your bank calling you to say that someone's deposited a large amount of money in your account that you can access? Is this really Microsoft ringing you to say there's a problem with your computer and they need to access it remotely? These things sound unbelievable now, but with some high-pressure techniques behind them are unfortunately very successful. So what do you need to do in these circumstances? As I've said, first of all, think. If you're not sure, take some time. Take some time to tell someone and get external advice. This applies as much in our business lives as it does in our personal lives. If you receive an email at work with a suspect attachment, something like an invoice or a random PDF document that you don't recognise, again, speak to a colleague and take some time to think about it. So we work with clients every day to deal with these issues, to help them protect themselves and identify when these problems have happened. If in doubt, it's always best to seek the advice of an expert or external party. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business. 
but it's personal. There are many ways for you to enjoy all our former Jazz Shapers and indeed to hear this programme again with Steve. You can ask Alexa to play Jazz Shapers and there you can hear many of the recent programmes. Or if you pop Jazz Shapers into iTunes or your preferred podcast platform, you can enjoy the full archive. But back to today and it's Steve Levine, founder and owner of Man Made Soul and co-founder and director of radio production company Magnum Opus Broadcasting. And what about the business of gear? What about the music industry? What about the fact that you are, you've had many companies? Mm. The talent's one thing. The musical nous is another thing, but running a business, how's that felt over the years? Well, I've always invested in the latest technology at every point that there has been. But if you look through the history of recorded music, from the very start of recording onto magnetic tape, technology has always shaped the way that people create both the songwriting in terms of an idea, because they often have a sound, or indeed the way the record is produced. It, and all the some of the greatest records ever, they've been milestones in technology changes. So... I realized that very early on, and my purchase of the Lindrum, which was phenomenally expensive at the time, it was over £3,000 in 1981, that was a lot of money. I spent virtually my entire publishing advance on that, but I knew that that investment was correct. Just as when digital recording first came out, those machines were £110,000 each. The three first purchases was myself, Nile Rogers, and Neil Young. Those were the first three purchases of digital tape machines, but I realized they would change the way that I worked because I'd grown up through analog technology and I love analog technology, but it was also creatively very difficult. You couldn't do the things that were in your mind immediately. There was always another consideration. Digital recording freed me up from a lot of those things. So I've always invested in the various formats. What's really interesting now is how things have gone full circle, Mm. where some things go right back to analog, the Higher end is moving higher and higher, which is fantastic. It's fair to say that with modern manufacturing, the reliability and audio quality of even quite inexpensive equipment is fantastic, meaning that now a whole new young generation of recording artists, songwriters, record producers, sound engineers can get their hands on tools that were unimaginable even only a couple of years ago. And so they're really, if your passion is wanting to make records, there's no excuse now. Get yourself a laptop, get yourself a small interface and a couple of mics and you're away. In terms of just quickly on the music front versus the radio production front, you're an award-winning producer, Mm. you're an award-winning radio producer as well. Which is for you more exhilarating? Which for you is the more satisfying if you had to choose? And you don't, luckily, because you can do both. I don't have to choose, but they're both very different. I think what I love about radio is you paint a picture of the mind. I know that phrase has been used before, but you have to really paint a picture in the mind. And the other thing that I love on radio versus visual is, as you well know, you can edit very creatively when you're not seeing the mouth move. It's something that, you know, those that watch television, every time you cut to someone's hands or a piece of furniture or something, you know they've done a cut. Whereas with radio, provided you edit well, you can really, really tell a very, very interesting story. And you can really help somebody out because very often when I interview somebody, they're, you know, I'm probably doing it myself, you meander, you go down a dark alleyway or you're not getting to the salient point where you can pull out the bits that make sense. So I think the storytelling of radio is really great, but I use record production techniques on my radio production. So that's why I'm really proud that when we won the award recently, we got two. One of them specifically was for the production. I do spend an enormous amount of time on making sure the edits are good, the recording in the first place is good, but I get rid of you know the pops and the mm. S's and whatever. I try and really make it 
an enjoyable experience. And I think one of the things that's brilliant about the huge interest in podcasts is people get so close. They're listening on headphones in most cases. And so your conversation with the listener is really intimate. So the audio quality has got to be pristine. You don't know this, but I'm on a beach in Barbados while Steve is uh, in a studio in London. I hope that's painted a nice picture for you. Time for music right now. We'll be back to Steve in a moment. It's Robert Glasper Experiment featuring Nora Jones with Let It Ride. That was the Robert Glasper experiment featuring Nora Jones. Different sound. I like that. Let it ride. It was. Steve Levine's my business shaper. It strikes me that what you do is quite personal. I mean, it's you in the studio with artists. It's you in the studio interviewing someone or with just a couple of people, quite intimate. When it comes to creating teams, though, there are lots of people involved in what you do. What's been your way of doing that? What's been your way of curating people? around you because of course it takes more than just one or two people to create all the things you've you've done over the years well i think when it comes to a solo artist and i've done a few of those over my time it's creating the right ambience with the musicians so for example i did a a, a session only a few months ago with a manchester-based artist solo artist and so i had to create the band drums bass guitar choosing the right musicians was crucial she was younger And so I chose some musicians who I'd worked with who've just graduated from the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts. So they were the same age as her, listened to the same music as her and had the same vibe. And it was fascinating watching them in the studio because obviously we're running through the song while I'm getting the sound. At my studio that I have at the moment, I do it all myself. I just don't, I mean, there aren't the budgets these days to have an assistant, a tape of, et cetera, et cetera. So generally speaking, I do it myself. Occasionally I have interns from the various universities, which is really great. But I won't do it if they're not going to be paid. It's not, not, that's, you know, that's not the way that it should be done. But the principle being is that choosing musicians who have the same, the same view on, on the artist is really, really important because they've never met before. So those first moments are really crucial. Conversely, I've just finished an album with The Vapors. Now, that's one of the punk bands that I never worked with on the original time. It's all the original members. But... Dave Fenton, the lead singer and songwriter, his son is in the band and his son is, I think, 20. So he brings a whole new angle to it. So with there, it's like kind of old blokes in the studio who understand the process absolutely, but then this young guy coming in going, that's really interesting, but I would do it like this because I've listened to this particular track and and that refreshes everything. I think it is a young person's game. There's no question about that. I'm hopefully still young at heart, but having all this influence from younger musicians or younger engineers. Like if I have students down, for example, uh, when I do like a masterclass, it becomes like a jousting match of who's going to show me the compressor that does this or who's going to show me the guitar sound that does that. And it becomes this thing where you have to be top of your game every time because they've kind of done all the theory and in many cases probably know more theory than I do, but they don't have the practical hands-on and they don't have 30-plus years of experience. So immediately they say oh my God, I didn't know you could do that with it. And that's where it's a great learning curve from both generations. Stay with me for a final chat with Steve Levine, plus we'll be playing a track from Herbie Hancock. Don't go anywhere, that's all coming up in just a moment here on Jazz FM. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. (laughs) 
That was Herbie Hancock with Dolphin Dance. Um, do you like Herbie Hancock, Steve? I adore Herbie Hancock, and I particularly like that track because I also like Grover Washington. But Herbie Hancock is a guy that, if you look at the records he's made over his career, which is incredibly long, the technology that he used at particular points, whether he used an ARP synthesizer, and in fact he's in the manual of the ARP synthesizer because he was one of the first adopters with Stevie Wonder. You look at what he did there. You move forward to the 80s. He was one of the first jazz musicians to really use sampling. And a track like Rocket, for example, uses an early sampler called an emulator. So he is someone that's kept pace with technology to this very day. He'll be using the very latest technology, which helps him write great songs, create incredible musical passages. Because that's one of the great things with the way that he works, is he creates chord progressions that slightly move in the way that you wouldn't have thought and often it's the technology that helps him move in that. Plus, he's a phenomenal player. So, yeah, I absolutely adore him. When you talk about what you do, you radiate utter passion. I mean, not just passion in, in, in a superficial sense, but this is, this is who you are. The person I see now, your eyes, your hand mm. movements, the whole thing, you are all in. Tell me about passion and the role it's played in terms of not just your view of the world, but the artists and the people you've come into contact with. Is it the differentiator or is talent the differentiator? I think it's both of those things because to be a great record producer, you also do have to be a great people person. I know that's a terrible phrase, but you've got to understand when you go in the room what that person is resonating. And it's very weird, those things, because in most cases, I've pretty much got most of the, the gigs I've been up for. There's been very few that I've, I've sort of walked into the room and thought, oh, I'm not sure about this. Most of them I can tell within the first few minutes of the meeting whether this is going to work out or not. And I remember all often those meetings particularly. So, for example, the Brian Wilson meeting, I remember that specifically. Now, I had a previous relationship with Bruce Johnson because he was a producer and I worked with him as a sound engineer. I'd also met Carl, but I'd never met Brian. So when I met Brian, Brian flew to Jamaica to meet me while I was in the middle of recording the Ziggy Marley album and my first, I can see him walking up the stairs of Tough Gong Studios. It's a terrible name dropping all these things. But that moment of him walking forward, and, I, and he was with the famous Dr. Eugene Landy, and he said, Steve, this is Brian. And I knew straight away. And, you know, we are lifelong friends. And there's been a few things through his career, even very recently, where he's just said things to me. And you think, oh, my God, this is incredible. So you... That's the thing. I think he understands how I am and vice versa. I also understand the enormous pressure he was under during that period of making those great records. So part of being a great producer, I think, is understanding what people like and dislike, trying to be their best friend, trying to help them realise their dreams. Because most of them, you know, you never go into a studio saying, today I'm going to make the worst record I've ever made. You always go into the studio with the idea that you're going to make the best record ever. But... Sometimes you don't have enough money, talent, budget, you know, all the things that go against you. So when you get it right, it is really, really exciting. And I've got it right on a few times. And even if the record hasn't been successful, I've had great relationships with different people. And I can honestly say that everyone I've worked with, we're friends for life. That's fantastic. Quick question just before we go to your song choice. Um, advice for a young person that wants to get into this business. What would, what would you say the top two things? So my words of advice for young, up-and-coming record producers or engineers. Certainly go to the library and read some great books. Steer clear of YouTube a little bit. There's quite a lot of videos out, these kind of how-tos, which are people, when I watch them, I think, I wouldn't take advice from you. So, so read, because there's some really great books written by really good people about the principles of recording. 
and do your research. You know, listen to a record. If you love that record, find the credits, because unfortunately these days without having an album, the credits are a little harder to find. See who produced it, where it was recorded, who the engineers are. Then find other records that are the same. And very soon, you'll find what you really, really like. And often when people say, well, who's going to work with me? If you go to school or college, there's bound to be a band or an artist that needs your help. So offer your help. If you're at school, offer to do the sound. Offer to go to the rehearsal. Everyone needs to rehearse. And then slowly but surely, you'll become their best mate and you'll be indispensable. And then thirdly, get yourself some recording facilities. And these can be done incredibly inexpensively. There's so much great stuff on the secondhand market because as the professionals change their gear and move forward, that stuff goes down. That's why the hip-hop generation became the hip-hop generation because most of the great hip-hop records of the mid-80s were using first-generation, early-80s gear that, in some cases, thrown in the skip and was really inexpensive. And a whole generation of artists took that second-hand gear and made a genre from it. So look around for second-hand gear. It's quite inexpensive. And then start learning about microphone technique, editing, recording, all those things. And then you'll have, in those three things, you know, read lots of things, try and work with a band or musicians, and get your own gear and learn how it works. And as we often say, read the manual. There is a, a, an acronym for that, but read the manual. Thank you. I think that will help, won't you? If you're young and you're listening, that might, might send you on your merry way. Steve, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Just before I let you go, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? Well, I'm going to choose a Four Tops record and I'm going to choose Baby I Need Your Loving because the Four Tops I adored. My parents loved them and one of the very first records I bought with my own money was the Four Tops Greatest Hits, which would have been around 69, something like that when it came out. The one where they're the green font on the cover and they're playing to some kind of really posh kind of, you know, middle-class audience, which was really interesting because if you think of that time, how the lovers of Motown were, it was predominantly, you know, quite a, a white middle-class audience. And I went to see them at the Hammersmith Odeon and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But it also opened my eyes to, wow, that's an amazing selection of songs, but that doesn't sound like the records because... The Four Tops Live were definitely more a cabaret-sounding band than the records. So again, I loved the performance, and as I said, it was the very first gig that I ever went to. That would have been around 1970, I think, or October 1970. But it shaped my vision of, wow, great songs, great performance. You know, Levi Stubbs' performance, incredible. But also wanting to go back to the studio. And the reason that Baby I Need Your Loving is so important to me as a producer is I luckily have interviewed many times Lamont Dozier. I've done a live show with him. And that's the last Motown record that had upright bass on it. The very next session, James Jameson brought in the electric bass and Motown changed forever. <laughs> was The Four Tops and Baby I Need You Loving. The song choice of my business shaper today, Steve Levine. He talked about the need to be passionate. He talked about the need to embrace new technology to keep you fresh. And really interestingly, he talked about feeling totally at home in a studio. Fantastic stuff. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a great weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. 
We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazzshapers. <laughs>